Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. So good to be together. I'm Travis, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles either in front of you uh, or one you have digitally to 1 Peter chapter 4, or if you want, you can just watch the screens today. Um, we're going to have those scriptures up on the screen, and um, one of the reasons is we're not going to have a lot of like little notes for you to take. Uh, at the end, there'll be some application stuff, but um, just really wanted us for this week just to be very present uh, together, having the conversation, what Peter's going to lead us through this week in, in, in the book that he wrote that God inspired in him. So First Peter chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 4, actually, uh, get a little running speed up until uh, we get into verse 12, which is where we really start our main part of the passage today. This week, as I studied uh, for this passage, you know, First Peter chapter 4 is so much about uh, Christians, people who follow Jesus, being um, persecuted wrong being done to them because of their faith in Jesus and, and, and how we respond to that. And in the passage we covered last week, it was mainly about how, what's our outward response? How do we respond outwardly to these things we go through possibly for following Jesus? This week is much more of a, a focus on how do we respond inwardly? How do we respond in our heart and in our mind? How am I supposed to feel about this when I go through hardship because of following Jesus? And as I studied, I was looking for just stories of people who have suffered for their faith in Jesus. And I came across tons of amazing stories of people who have been willing to suffer to follow Jesus. Interesting thing is that I didn't find many that were from America. Most of them were from other places in the world. And that could very easily uh, lead us to believe, well, suffering doesn't happen because of Jesus in America. And I don't think that's true. I think the reality is that Across the world, there is, um, there's a range of what people experience because of following Jesus. And in America, because um, it's been so, uh, Christianity has been so favored since the inception of America until very recently, um, we haven't really experienced a lot of what other people do in the world. But that doesn't mean that what Peter's trying to tell us today doesn't apply to us. It does. Because what Peter is going to be saying to us scales to any kind of suffering you may experience. Some people suffer with their life. Some people give their life to follow Jesus. For most of us in America, it's not going to be that. It may just be most likely a loss of reputation. In America, you get mocked sometimes for believing what you believe, that maybe you're just backward in thinking or you're believing a myth. Lots of other things. Um, sometimes, uh, as a Christian, you get mocked that you're bigoted because of some things you might believe. Um, But all that being said, it it doesn't matter really. We're not talking about the level of persecution or or hardship you experience. It's it's how faithful you are to Jesus through it at whatever level it is. Does that make sense? What Peter's going to teach us scales to any level, whether small or all the way to you're going to give your life for it. So as we listen, and you know, another thing, this comes to mind. Jesus said this in Luke 16. He says, trusted with little, trusted with much. So here in America, even if we're not experiencing a high degree of persecution, are you, are you trustworthy with the little that you are experiencing? Because believe me, one day in America, that little will, will turn to much. 
If you think that Christianity is always gonna be favored and always gonna be uh, looked on positively in America, well, first of all, it's really not as much as it used to be anymore. And there will be a day, I guarantee it, where you will be severely persecuted here in this country for what you believe. It's hard to imagine that sometimes, but I do believe that that's the case. So if you're trusted with little, if you learn right now in America to handle the things that come your way because of following Jesus well, you can be trusted with much. How are we going to handle death threats when we can't handle simple mocking? We've got to train ourselves now to be ready for what comes then. So in the first chapter, uh, in the first part of this chapter four, Peter has guided our outward response to suffering. In the second half, which we're going to tackle today, he's now directing our inward response. How am I supposed to think and feel about this? And in doing this, he, he addresses some very real and difficult feelings we'll have. Feelings like surprise. Not being ready for it when it comes. Feelings like resenting the injustice. Is there something in you, like in me, when, when you see something that happens that's unjust, or especially when it happens to you, there's just this fire that gets lit in your heart, and you, you want things to be different. You want it to be made right. So resenting injustice, shame. I want to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have at times felt ashamed because of something you believe. Well, you can raise your hands if you want. Uh, uh, yeah, how many of you have felt shame? <laughs> you can raise your hands. I have. There have been times like, is, is that really what you believe? My answer is, yeah, I, I do believe that. Ah, oh, man, what a myth. We can feel shame because of what we believe. How about doubt? Man, there's so many times I've doubted. How about a desire for revenge? Has someone ever done something to you, wrongly mistreated you, and your reaction was, I want to get back? So natural to our broken hearts. But Peter is going to give us a different Reaction, a different story, a different way to be human as we follow Jesus. So let's, let's get a little running start here in verse 4. We kind of chap- followed this last week. Uh, we skipped over verses 5 and 6, but let's see what Peter starts to say about how we respond inwardly. Verse 4, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. With respect to this, what? With respect to what? That you no longer are doing the things you used to do. You're saying no to sin more than you did, and you're not following in the same behavior you did before. With respect to that, they are surprised who? Those who are in the world, those who haven't followed Jesus yet. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, and I believe that should maybe read, those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There are people in this world that mock the Christian view of death and yet rejoice in their own view of death. I once heard a very popular commentator and podcaster refer to Christians as people who follow a Jewish zombie because he died and he was raised back to life. Okay, that's kind of witty. I don't find it very funny, but that's probably because I'm a Christian. Uh, the, the theory, though, or the thought is that we've made up this fairy tale about a man raising from the dead as if that could possibly happen. And so there's this mocking to something that seems so supernatural, because it is. Peter, the church that he was writing to, was being mocked for somewhat of the same idea 
This is a group of people that believes that if you trust in this crucified peasant named Jesus, that you'll have eternal life. But the people around the church were saying, no, you talk about eternal life, and you talk about if you just trust this guy named Jesus, you'll have eternal life, but I just saw that you had a funeral for one of the people who believed last week, so it's not working too well for them. That doesn't look like eternal life to me. So the people around were saying, so what's the point of you believing all this? Why do you preach this gospel, this good news, to people who are just going to die anyways? It's wasted. It's, it's pointless. There's no life. At least when we die, it's over and nothing else can be done. No bad thing can happen to us when we die. But Peter's point here is that though people hear the gospel and believe in Jesus while they're alive, it says the gospel is preached to those who are dead. I think he means those who are now dead. The gospel is preached to them in life. But it's not wasted because they're now dead. Because there's this thing called life after death. You don't cease to exist. Every person who's ever lived will face a judge. Face God as their judge. And so we can be mocked for what we believe. You believe there's a life after death? That's crazy. But what Peter is saying is, don't worry about it. Everyone will face this judge. And death for those who don't believe is not an escape from the judge as if he could only pass sentence on them while they're living. He's able to judge those who have died. And for those who do trust Jesus, there is spiritual life after death. So how are you supposed to process this reality internally when people would say, you're just believing in a myth. You just don't want to believe that there's an end. Wasting your time. And then maybe you're mistreated because of it. Or maybe you're, you're called a bigot because you believe that it's only through Jesus that people can have eternal life. How do you respond internally to that kind of mocking and injustice? A pastor I listen to regularly said this way. Don't lose any sleep over injustice done to you. There will be none in the end. Now, in no way is Peter encouraging Christians, those who follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, he's not encouraging us to gloat over those who mock us. In no way is he saying that. Remember in, in chapter 2, verse 12, how Peter says, do all these good works, loving and living for God, and maybe those who now mock you will see your good works. And what? Glorify God. The heart of the man who's writing this letter is that all people would come to know Jesus and be saved. So the response in that they're going to face, that we're all going to face a judge, that's not gloating. That is not grandstanding. It's just reality. And so we don't have to worry about injustice. Our response is not to gloat in judgment over those who mock. It's to trust the judge. Let me ask you this. Are you able to judge completely perfectly? Anyone? 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 Good. No one raised their hand. That was really good. We can judge, but we can't judge perfectly. And so that's why we have to leave it to the one who does judge perfectly. God himself. So the answer is not are you judging? The answer in the question is are you praying? Are you loving? We have to stick to what God has given us to do. We move on to verse 12 now. This is what Peter says. He says, beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I wonder if he's thinking back to Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow to a false god and so they're threatened and then they're thrown into a fiery furnace. I wonder if that's what he's thinking about when he says fiery trial. 13, and this is where it gets weird, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice that I'm suffering? Yes, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now he says, do not be surprised. And he uses the same word as in verse 4 when he says that unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They are surprised when you don't join, but you should not be surprised when you get mocked for it. We need to anticipate this. I can't help but imagining that as Peter penned this verse, his mind wandered back to that day 30 years ago when he sat on the slope of a grassy hill in Israel listening to his master, listening to his friend Jesus say these words, Matthew 5.10, Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted, mistreated for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. At the very inception of Jesus' ministry here on earth, his call to follow him included the reality and the warning that suffering may come with it will come with it. So we should never be surprised. It should not seem strange when we experience mistreatment or mocking or suffering, even death for following Jesus. I think for American Christians, our flinch reaction to being mistreated is, is typically to retaliate. I think this is especially hard for us at times. Because in America, Christianity has been so favored since the beginning of our country until more recently that it can be hard for us to accept that suffering for Jesus is normative. We tend to look at, at suffering as something that's not a regular part of life, especially suffering for Jesus. We tend to look at it and say, man, if I do the right things, I'm going to benefit from it. This is not the way it is for most people who have followed Jesus through the history of, of the world. It is not normal. And so it can be hard for us to accept that suffering for Jesus is normal. But God is asking us to prepare for suffering and not be surprised by it so that we don't flinch ourselves into defensive reaction. We don't flinch ourselves into sin. There's a reason why when the nurse at the hospital has a, a needle and is coming for your arm with it, they say, hold still, Right? Because if they don't warn you, you're not expecting it coming, and all of a sudden you feel pain in your arm, you might flinch. That's bad for, for that nurse. It's bad for you, right? I remember when my daughter Madison was little, maybe three or four, um, she had to go get some blood drawn for something. And so they always have the parents, you know, have the kid. You've been through this, sit on your lap, hold them still, right? You're holding them around here, and you're holding the arm down. Why? Because they don't have impulse control. They see this sharp needle coming at them, and they're like, I'm out of here. 
I'm going to get out of here. So I remember Madison, she's getting her blood drawn. So I, I, I'm holding her arm down. She's screaming bloody murder. I think people like in Canada heard her scream. And, and, and the, the nurse comes in and she puts the, the, the needle into Madison's vein. And Madison's just freaking out. And then she looks straight at the lady and she says, take it out, lady. Take it out. And we're just laughing, and then it's done, and she starts, you know, she's crying. But the reason why they have parents hold children when that's happening is because children don't have that impulse control. What Peter is asking us here is that we be adults and as spiritually mature as possible and have that impulse control, not be surprised when the pain comes at us, but to be able to respond rather than react. He's asking us to be spiritually grown. And what's even harder to do than that is what Peter writes in verse 13. He says, rejoice. You're in pain. You're being mistreated. Rejoice. But look at why Peter says to rejoice in suffering now. He says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What is Peter referring to as Jesus' glory being revealed? He's talking about the reality that Jesus who died and raised from the grave and went to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven is also returning. Jesus is going to come back in his glory. He's going to come back physically from the sky. And people say, you believe that? Yes, I do. I believe he's coming back and I believe he's going to set all things right. So those who trust Jesus now and are willing to endure suffering now for Jesus' sake will also share in Jesus' victory and his glory then. He's saying, when you experience pain now, because of Jesus, because of suffering for Jesus, because you follow him, let it remind you that it's not always going to be pain. There's a day when he comes back and you're going to know that you are on the right side of history because you followed the true king and you will rejoice and there will be no more pain no more suffering because what he promised he will deliver I've watched my wife go through six childbirths childbirth is the most of all the natural things I've seen it's the most unnatural thing I've seen (laughs) for this like human to be inside and then come out and all the pain and it's just ah and, I, and I, I've looked at my wife walk through all the pain and suffering of, of childbearing, and, and I'm just like, why are you so happy? I would be miserable. I would just be like, what in the world has happened to me? And the reason why is because she is able to take the binoculars, put them up to her eyes, and see what's on the other side of the pain. A beautiful baby girl. If you're wondering why everyone's laughing, it's because you're not aware that I have six daughters and no sons. There are no such thing as Edgerton baby boys, at least in my family. Friend, if you're suffering now because of Jesus, rejoice. This is proof that a down payment has been made on your behalf for an unfathomable eternal reward. This is exactly what Peter means when he writes the next verse, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think so many of us have this internal struggle. I'm trying to follow Jesus with all my heart, but things just don't turn out in my favor. Why does so much stuff in my life go wrong? I'm really trying. I'm not perfect, but I'm really seeking after God. Why does so much stuff go wrong in my life? And if that's the question that you've asked in those dark moments of your life, friend, take heart. Take heart. You are not alone, and this is not evidence that God has abandoned you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you're experiencing hardship as you run after Jesus, this is evidence that his spirit is with you. These are Peter word, Peter's words, not mine. He's saying, if you experience hardship on Jesus' behalf, rejoice. Why? Because you know you belong to him. What better news could there be that you're going to be with God forever for eternity? And he says, suffering on Jesus' behalf is one of the proofs that you belong to him. So rejoice. It won't always be this way. And there will be an eternity with him. And it'll be glorious. Now, Peter also wants to make sure that certain people don't get the wrong impression. He puts in a little disclaimer here in verse 15. Read this with me. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now, if I may take a few liberties with translating the Greek that Peter wrote this in, here's what he's saying. Don't do dumb stuff and then blame Jesus for it. I think that's a pretty good rendition of what he said. Not all suffering is a sign that you're following Jesus, is it? Sometimes it's because you did something evil or you did something unloving or you did something selfish and you're kind of getting what you earned. That's reality, isn't it? The first two things he lists in this list here are like murderer and thief. And then he says evildoer. And we're like, yeah, it makes sense that a person would, you know, kind of have some bad reactions because of those things. But what about the, the last one? Meddling. What does that even mean? The word that Peter uses here is actually made up of three other words. It's kind of like sandwiching three words together to get this kind of full perspective of what he's trying to say. The words that he sandwiches together is others, overseer, and looking intently. So what you get from these words is that it gives the impression that it's a person who is intently looking into the affairs of others and thinks they have a right to tell them what to do. They're meddling. They're bossy. And sometimes it means that they're looking into the affairs of others and they don't talk to them about it. They talk to everyone else about it. It's a gossip. It's a busybody. It's a slanderer. The overall impression that we get is this is the person who snoops and spies and gossips and bosses people around. I have truth, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I think because I've been watching your life, and I know better than you do. You know, some Christians ask this question, why does everyone hate me? Why, does, why do people not like me? I guess I'm just suffering for Jesus. Maybe. Or maybe it's because we can be very aggressive and rude and ignorant to the fact that my perspective isn't the only one. 
Just because you have a Bible doesn't mean you understand it. And just because you have truth doesn't mean you have the wisdom to communicate it well. I hear people say, I just tell it like I see it. I just tell the truth like I see it. Yes, but do you love people like God sees people? I'm not on social media for several reasons. One of them is I think I'd just be ticked off all the time if I was on social media. Another reason, and this is honestly true, I I don't trust myself with it. I don't trust myself not to react or respond to such a broad audience in, in a moment where I'm angry or I'm prideful or whatever happened or someone says something I don't like or someone disagree with me. I don't trust myself to handle that well. I'm not dogging social media. There's lots of great stuff, and I know I bang this drum rather regularly when I preach, but I think it needs to be heard. I'm constantly, I hear things that people, even from this church, Christians, write on social media in response to people who disagree with them or because they have an opinion about something, and I'm horrified by it. People say, well, I have the truth, so I'm just going to say it like it is. But no love. No listening. No humility. I think it's possible that maybe as a church, we just need to say from now on, we're not going to share our opinion on social media. Do what you want. That's what I think. Because I think very few of us can have the impulse control to really handle that well. If I've hurt your feelings, I'm kind of sorry, but not really. We have got to represent Jesus well. And that is one of the main places that when we feel mistreated or when we feel someone disagrees with us or there's something needs to be said, we misuse it. We wield it like a sword. And it's hurtful. And people aren't hearing your truth because they aren't feeling your love. Truth spoken without love, in pride or in anger, truth spoken without love is sub-truth. It is not telling the whole story. Because God is not just a being who has truth. He is a being who loves. And if you speak truth without love, you're not telling the whole story. And so it's sub-truth. Because the truth of God must be validated by the love of God. Do you see what Jesus did for you? He didn't just come down and plop down more commandments, did he? He became one of us. He suffered for us. He healed the sick. He forgave the broken. He forgave the most wretched of sinners like you and me. And he did it in love, and he died on a cross for you. So if you say anything or tell any story that is, quote, truth, but it does not, is not co- accompanied by love, it is not Christ-like. It is not. Truth spoken without love is sub-truth, and we have got to orient our lives to this church. Can I get an amen? amen. Peter now jumps back to suffering and how we should respond to it, but he moves to a different realm of its effect on Christians, and that's the realm of shame. Verse 16. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus. Peter acknowledges that shame may be associated with taking on the name Christian as one who believes that this Jewish peasant who was crucified as a criminal is actually the king of the world. I know, it sounds crazy to some people. And how easy it it was and still is to mock Christians for their belief. But when I look at the person of Jesus, who he was and what he did, he's the most real thing I've ever encountered in my life. He's the most different person that I've encountered in my life because when he was slapped, he loved. When he was crucified, he prayed. When he was beaten, he forgave. When he was mocked, he closed his mouth and didn't say anything back. And when they nailed him to a cross and murdered him, he's on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You can say anything you want about that seeming unrealistic that he rose from the dead, but who he was is the most compelling person in the history of the world. And I believe what the Bible says about him. Don't be ashamed of the person who died to love you. Don't be ashamed of the person who died to invite everyone in this world to an eternity in heaven with the Father. Peter reassures the church that if they suffer because of their association with a crucified king, that they need not be ashamed. Why? Verses 17 and 18. Four, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's Christians. That's people who believe in Jesus. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He goes on to quote Proverbs 11.31 and says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter believes that shame for following Jesus is nullified because God, as the judge, will have the last word. The judgment that Peter talks about here is a broad term that boils down to like evaluating, being judged, being evaluated by people. And I think what he's saying here is that right now, this world is judging and evaluating Jesus' family as people who are backwards, ignorant fools, who are missing out on life, who are believing a myth. And so right now, in this upside-down world, this is the time that the house of God, the people of Jesus, must endure judgment from the world. It starts with us. We get to go through the judgment right now in this world for what we believe. It's not right judgment. It's not true judgment, but it's still judgment. This is our time to experience that and to absorb that. And you know what? We don't just have to absorb it. God uses this persecution as a refining experience for his people. Pain has been the most life-changing catalyst in my life of all the things I've experienced. Pain has been the top change and catalyst in my life. And I, I, I bet if I asked each one of you, a lot of you would say the same. Pain is only wasted if you don't grow through it. God uses the pain and the rejection and the mocking. And if we respond like Jesus, we become more like him. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point, church? 
Not to become more like the world, but to become more like Jesus. Suffering for Jesus is unjust, and it's okay to feel the injustice of it and to want things to be different. It's okay for your heart to rise up and say, it should not be this way. But after you've had that moment, realize that suffering for Jesus is a gift if it's received in faith. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so unjust evaluation from this world, unjust judgment from this world can be translated by our Father into just evaluation, just judgment by him. It unveils and it unmasks the sin and brokenness that still lurks in our hearts as his children. And it draws that sin and poison to the surface to be put to death. Do you know how many people elect to cause themselves pain every single day, choose pain every single day? It's called surgery. Because you found out that there's something wrong inside. And so you willingly lay down on a table, let them put you asleep, and let a doctor come at you with a knife. And they cut stuff out of you, sew you back up, and then the recovery is ten times as bad as the surgery. People willingly choose this every day. Why? Because I don't want the poison inside. I don't want to be sick. I want to be whole. And how much more is this true for those of us who follow Jesus to lay ourselves down on that surgeon's table and let him, through pain, cut out of us that which no longer brings life, which is poison, which will kill you. So rejoice that your suffering is like surgery, that though extremely painful, it's God's scalpel to remove that which is poisoning and killing you. But that's not the end of the story. It's not just that you'll experience pain and that's it. The end of the story is that God himself will judge. God himself will evaluate those who are being rebellious against the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the king whether or not people recognize it. You don't have to vote him in. He's king. And God, who is just, will evaluate and judge every person who has lived and the criteria for his judgment will be, did you surrender to my son, King Jesus, who died for you so that you could be invited into my family and be with us forever? Have you rejected that kind, merciful, inexplicably loving offer? If so, I will respect your wishes. God has invited us into his home to be with him forever, and those who don't want it, he will respect their wishes. And he will give them what they want. If you don't want to be with me forever, I will not force you to be with me forever. Every person, whether living or dead, will be judged. Dying does not escape judgment. That's what people in Peter's day believed. If I can make it to death unscathed, unscathed, I'm okay. No, because you will face a judge. And, 
And even though Peter brings this harsh reality to light, he's so brilliant. God is so brilliant in how he inspired Peter to write this and to quote Proverbs in such a brilliant and profound way as a counterbalance, again, to the temptation that we might have to judgmentally gloat about the judgment of God for those who don't believe. He says this, if the righteous is scarcely saved, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so in one fell swoop, Peter utilizes this Old Testament scripture as the foundation of his warning for judgment to the world. Don't think that by dying you'll get away with all the injustice. While at the same time he fights against the pride or the heart of retaliation that could so easily well up in the heart of a believer who's being persecuted. This quote says that the righteous is scarcely saved. And this is a reminder to these suffering Jesus followers that they were once on the other side. You and I were once on the other side. We, didn't, we weren't born believing. We weren't born trusting in Jesus. And yes, those who have believed in Christ have been made righteous because of Jesus. But what a close call. What a close call. We all could have so easily stayed in our rebellion if it weren't for the miraculous work of God drawing our hearts to him. And so even though a believer is persecuted for their faith in Jesus, there is never justification to wish evil upon your persecutor. Never. Or have you forgotten that you were saved out of that same way of life? Once was lost, now I'm found. Our desire should be that every person who is now far from God would see the love of God through us and join his family, even if they're mocking us now. They are not the enemy. People who don't understand why you believe what you believe and even mock you for it, they are not the enemy. They're what you once were. We love them. Peter brilliantly, beautifully ties this chapter to a close in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while, it says while, but I put in there in parentheses, by doing good. That word that gets translated into while can be translated a lot of different ways. And I think in the context, by is a much better way to translate this. That people who entrust their souls to a faithful creator, they do it by doing good. Why does Peter refer to God as creator? This is the first time and only time in the whole book of 1 Peter that, that Peter refers to God as the creator. What reason could he have for doing that? The reason I believe is that Peter is hyperlinking back to Genesis 1, the very beginning, where God creates man and then declares that man is very good. And then God blesses man with the mission to fill the earth and rule over it as God's image. In other words, keep increasing the good that I've made. Keep making creation better. Keep the very good flowing. That was our original design. And Peter refers to God as creator in this verse to cause our minds to kind of explode with the images of our original design. That we are imagers of God who only will ever fill the earth with God's goodness. That is our call, to fill God's earth with goodness. 
So at the same moment that we trust God with the suffering we experience and the judgment that is to come, we don't respond to the suffering with retaliation or even just idly wait for it to be over. We respond to the hardship of life by doing good in the name of Christ. It is so hard to put retaliation behind and to take on the good works God has for us. This week, it was tested in my heart, not because of anything that happened to me because of Jesus, but just because of something that happened. On Tuesday, I'm up at Camp Chinkapin at a staff retreat, and I get a text from my daughter Madison that at her school, Turlock High School, where she and my daughter Kayla go, that there's this uh, active shooter thing happening. Get this text that we're being locked down and it, 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 it seems like an active shooter situation. My heart dropped. And for about 20 minutes, we, couldn't, we didn't hear from Kayla. Finally, we heard from her. Longest 20, 25 minutes of my life, I'm telling you. All to find out it was a hoax. All these thousands of kids and thousands of parents are fearing for the lives of these people they love themselves, fearing death, because someone decided, it seems like, to get on a walkie-talkie and say, active shooter, active shooter. My heart was not in, like, the forgiveness realm this week to whatever punk did that. My heart was like, juvenile hall, have to move out of town, ruined for the rest of her life, never get a job. I'm sorry if that's harsh, but I'm just being honest, okay? That's squarely where my heart was. God's gotten a hold of me. I'm feeling much better now, starting to forgive. But that's where our hearts so easily go, isn't it? When something wrong, unjust, horrible happens, and we've got to trust God in the process to bring us to a different place. It's not easy, but it is so necessary. That is not God's heart for that young person, whoever did that. That's not his heart. His heart is forgiveness. Does there need to be some repercussions for it? Absolutely. But God's heart is love. God's heart is forgiveness. God's heart is grace. And so guess what? Him being my king, me being his follower, that's where my heart must be, must get to, must point towards as well. to be imaging him as he originally designed me to image him, giving good and only good, no matter what's dished out to me. So our response to suffering is we expect it, we rejoice because of it because we know what's coming in the end. Don't ever be ashamed by it. Learn to trust through it and image God in response to it. That's our call. I know a lot of you are in small groups. They just started back up again. I hope you're enjoying those. For those of you who aren't in a small group, get in one. You're missing out. I want to to give you some thoughts and suggestions for comments and questions to talk through in these groups. And and we're going to have these actually up on the screen right now. The first one is this. Share together how you experience suffering for Jesus. And at any scale is okay. It doesn't have to be some huge, oh man, someone you know, threatened my life. No, it doesn't have to be that. It could just be that you know, I used to have these friends and, and I hung out with them. I still want to be friends with them, but because of what I believe now, they just, I'm not as much fun to them anymore. And so I've kind of been kicked out of the group. That might be a smaller level of suffering, but it still is. 
all the way to, you know, who knows what you could have experienced. Share those things with each other. You shouldn't go through those alone. We need to work through them together. The second thing I do is ask you a question. How do you typically react when you experience mistreatment? What's your typical flinch reaction when you experience the mistreatment or injustice that comes to you? Let's be honest about where our hearts tend to be. Let's be honest about the kind of sinful flinch reaction. The third question, how do you want to respond when this happens? What is your game plan to image God well when you're mistreated? If you're surprised when it happens, most likely you'll flinch react into sin, flinch react into something that does not honor Jesus. We have to have a plan. We have to have a game plan in the same way that when the nurse comes to us with the needle, our plan is just don't move, just don't move, just don't move. And then it's done and it happens. In the same way, we have to have a plan. When suffering comes my way, how will I respond? What does Jesus call me to respond? Talk this through together as a group and make a decision to hold each other accountable for how we ought to respond. And the last thing I'd say is this. Sometimes our flinch reactions form into flinch patterns. The things that we do in response to hurt or suffering, pain, unhappiness, can, can morph in, instead of a flinch reaction, it becomes a pattern and if that's you, if you found yourself in a destructive pattern, Hope Found is an amazing ministry we have here, and it's starting back up again this Thursday, September 19th, 6.30, over in the pavilion across the street. This is for everyone. Be there. Let the Lord change those destructive patterns with truth. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you that you are so gracious and giving to us, that Jesus saw our plight, saw the mercy that we needed, that we didn't deserve, and that he responded to us. Those who put him on the cross, he responded to us with mercy, with loving us, with praying for us, with giving his life for us. And I pray you'd make us the same kind of people as him. Imperfect as we are, make us more like Jesus. We love you. We thank you and ask you to do these things in Jesus' holy name. Everyone said, amen.